Well, this past week was uh, Valentine's Day, right, gentlemen? I suppose reminding you of it at this point doesn't do you a whole lot of good, does it? Maybe you'll do better next year. Actually, what I thought I would do is maybe bail you out. Um, How many of you wrote a poem besides Art to his uh, wife for Valentine's Day? (laughs) Well, I didn't write one either, but I went on the Internet and I found one. So, uh, so gentlemen, how about I'll, I'll read this for you, and this would be like your Valentine poem to your wife. How's that? Is that good? Now, you have to live down south to really appreciate this particular poem. <laughs> Carolyn and Billy will really like this poem. <laughs> All right, where are you, Carolyn? Oh, I see you now. Okay. Well, here you go. Just pretend this is Billy speaking. (laughs) Kudzu is green. My dog's name is Blue. And I'm so lucky to have a sweet thing like you. Your hair is like corn silk a-flapping in the breeze. Softer than blues and without all them fleas. You move like the bass, which excite me in May. You ain't got no scales, but I love you anyway. You're as graceful as Oakry, just a-dancing in the pan. You're as fragrant as Sundrop right out of the can. You have all your teeth, for which I am proud. I hold my head high when we're in a crowd. Them fellas at work, they all want to know what I did to deserve such a pretty young doe. Like a good roll of duct tape, you're there for your man to patch up life's troubles and stick them in the can. You're as strong as a four-wheeler racing in through the mud, yet fragile as that Sanger Naomi Judd. (laughs) You're as cute as a June bug a-buzzing overhead. You ain't mean like no fire ant upon which I off-tread. Cut from the best pattern like a flannel shirt of plaid. You sparked up my life like a rattletrap shad. I don't even know what that is. I think it's a fish, maybe, huh? When you hold me real tight like a padded gun rack, my life is complete. Ain't nothing I lack. Your complexion, it's perfect like the best vinyl siding. Despite all the years, your age keeps hiding. And when you get old, like a 57 Chevy, won't put you on blocks, let grass grow up heavy. (laughs) Me and you's like a moon pie with an RC cold drank. We go together like a skunk goes with stank. Some men, they buy chocolate for Valentine's Day. They get it at Walmart. It's romantic that way. Some men get roses on that special day from the cooler at Kroger. That's impressive, I say. Some men buy fine diamonds from a flea market booth. Diamonds are forever, they explain, suave and couth. But for this man, honey, these will not do, for you are too special, you sweet thing, you. 
I got you a gift without taste nor odor, better than diamonds. It's a new trolling motor. <laughs> there you go, gentlemen. After that, whatever you do or don't do will be up from there. <laughs> oh, man. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. I want to talk about love this morning. Romans chapter 5. Page 1129 if you're using one of those two Bibles. We're working our way here through the first 11 verses of Romans 5. We've been at this for a little bit now. And as we go through this text together, we've noted there are six reasons contained in these 11 verses why a Christian should have assurance of his salvation so that we might live boldly for Jesus Christ. And these six reasons that are contained here in the text, they're really, uh, you can think of them like strands in a rope. Strands of rope, six strands of a rope that when braided together cause that cord to be really strong so that you will be bound securely to Jesus Christ. Okay, One is great, but two, three, four, five, and six all together, working together, binding you to Jesus Christ. No matter what happens, no matter what happens in your life, if you have by faith embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you are bound to Him with a cord that cannot be broken. We looked at these reasons the first a couple of weeks ago, the first one there in verse 1. We said it was peace with God. That is, that God is at peace with us. The relationship of hostility that once existed between us and our fallen nature, we resided under the wrath of God, Paul says. That has now changed in Jesus Christ. He is now at, God is at peace with us through Christ. Beyond that, Paul says that we now stand in a new realm. We live in a new world. That is a world of grace. We are in the world of constant forgiveness. That is, that, that we are not just forgiven in the past, but we are forgiven eternally in the present and into the future for all that we do and don't do with regard to our sin. We are now living in the realm of the forgiven. And third, Paul told us last week that we have tremendous hope. We have tremendous hope. We have hope in a future glory that when Christ returns and sets this world right, that he will glorify us. That is, that he will change us and make us like the image of Jesus Christ. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more best intentions that fall so woefully short of living for the glory of God. That will all change when Christ returns. And so we live in light of that future glory and it gives us a hope that, that will carry us and stabilize us even today in the midst of the afflictions, the persecutions, the trials and tribulations of life that come at us. We operate now in the realm of hope. These are the reasons Paul has told us that we can find assurance in Jesus Christ and that we can live boldly for Him. Let me read the text and we'll look together at that fourth reason this morning. Paul says, therefore, verse one, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. 
And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul says there that we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope. And in verse 5, beginning of verse 5, he says that hope does not disappoint. That hope does not disappoint. How is it? How is it that a justified man can be sure that that future hope of glory will be there for him? That he's not going to come up empty-handed at the end. How can you be sure? How can you be sure? How do you know that the circle of hope that begins there with your the future glorification that it moves around that circle, as Paul says, through the through the tribulations and trials of life that are supposed to bring about patience and so forth and and ends with hope again. And Paul says a hope that doesn't disappoint. How do you know? How do you know the hope doesn't disappoint? The answer is there in verse five. You see it? Because because the answer to the question is because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's our fourth reason, beloved. The fourth reason we can have assurance of our salvation is because we know the love of God. It's that simple. We know, Paul says, the love of God. And we know it in two ways. We know it subjectively and we know it objectively. And that's what he's going to deal with here in the text before us this morning. First, that we know the love of God. It is the reason our hope will not disappoint, we know the love of God and we know it subjectively through the Holy Spirit. The end of verse five, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, this expression, the love of God, it's not talking about our our love for God. It's talking about our uh, God's love for us. OK, it's talking about God's love for us. The love of God, Paul's talking about here, is God's love. And what he says is because God's love has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, we know that it is not our love for him, but his love for us, because he gives us the evidence in verse six and following of what that love objectively looks like. Where he says, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly and so forth. So we know that it is not that we are assured of our salvation because because we have this great love for God. We are assured of our salvation because God has this great love for us and he has poured it out within our heart that then will work something subjectively in us. It's been poured out, he says. Do you see it? Verse five. The love has been poured out within our hearts. Now, that's a great metaphor poured out. It's not a trickle. Not just a little stream. 
It's an effusion. It's, it's, a, it's a flood. It's just poured out, he says, within our hearts. And Paul uses a perfect tense verb here. And so what he's saying is that it's not just poured out at one time, but it poured out and it continues, it abides, it remains as a continual permanent flood within our hearts. Our hearts are flooded, Paul says, with the love of God. Now, the idea behind this metaphor is that this is not a stingy kind of love. This is an extravagant love. This is an effusive love. This is a, a lavish love poured out within us. Extravagant. thought about that word for a while. And how do you illustrate extravagant in a society that is extravagant? In a, in a world, in a culture in which extravagance has become the norm, how do you illustrate extravagance? You go on the internet and you Google extravagant gifts. And so that's what I did. I Googled extravagant gifts and, and I found a couple that are quite extravagant. And I think they illustrate for us what Paul is communicating here when he talks about the love of God poured out within us. I remember when my children were young, there was a, a certain toy car available, and I don't even remember what it cost, but it was more than we could afford, that had a little battery deal in it, and the kids could kind of drive around the driveway in one of these things, and at least one of my children or more wanted such a thing. But that's not an extravagant gift. I found an extravagant gift. So you ready? This is called the Junior Off-Roader Gasoline-Powered Vehicle for Two. This is the advertisement. It's recommended, by the way, for 7 to 12-year-olds. Get an early start on teaching your kids how to drive a car with this gas-guzzling two-seater. Children can even tune into the radio with a fully functional removable tape deck with speakers on both sides. The car shifts into three different modes and has adjustable leather seats. Runs on unleaded gasoline. Price, $32,350. I'll take two. Right? But that's not extravagant. How about this one? I remember we did buy our children a, a swing set, right? A swing set for the yard. And now some um, parents are, are buy these, um, uh, I call them jungle gyms. I don't know what else you call them. They got various climbing things on them and so forth. They put them in their backyard. Well, I found one. It's called Tumble Outpost. It says this giant playset includes a lookout tower with double rock climbing walls a fire pole, and a small play area below. Kids can go on a great adventure over a swinging bridge, a rope bridge, or either go to the upper-level clubhouse or end in the jailhouse below. Other play features include a rope net ladder, an earthquake landing platform, and a turbo-tube slide. Sorry. $97,510. That's, that's extravagant. $97,510, plus shipping and tax, of course. That's extravagant, right? You sit there and you go, that's ridiculous. That's extravagant. Nobody needs something like that. But see, beloved, that's what extravagance is. It's over the top. It's, it's beyond imagination. It's not something you can just, the average person can get on their own. It's like out of this world. And, and that's what Paul's saying here back, back to verse 5. The love of God has been poured out in a lavish, extravagant, over-the-top fashion within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
Now, notice, just notice again the text here. He says that this manifestation of divine love is, it doesn't come by some external revelation. It doesn't come by the works of providence in our life. It's, you don't know the love of God for you because of the providential events of your life. Okay? By external manifestations. You can't just look at your life and know the love of God for you. Paul says you know the love of God because the Holy Spirit was given to you and He has poured it out within your heart. It's within that you know this love of God. Now, it's based on objective facts, and we'll deal with those momentarily here, verses 6 and following, but, but there is a subjective experience he's talking about. This subjective experience comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit who resides within those who have by faith embraced the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says that the Spirit of God is your earnest. It is your down payment. It is your engagement ring that assures you that God will finish the work that He has begun in you. You ever thought about that? When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the triune Godhead takes up residence within you in the person of the Spirit of God. Third person of the triune Godhead resides now within us. What a lavish, what an extravagant, what an incomprehensible thought that God now lives in me and pours out His love into my heart. What Paul's saying here is that the Spirit within us, He makes us deeply and persuasively aware that God loves us. That God loves us. Paul has a similar thought and over in chapter 8, verse 16. 8.16. Where there he says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, what? The children of God. See, one of the ministries of the Spirit of God residing within our heart is to communicate to us that we are really indeed children of God. And he does it by pouring out in a lavish, extravagant, over-the-top fashion, God's love for us. Why will hope not let me down? Verse 5. Why will it not disappoint me? Because God has flooded my heart with his love. He has flooded it. And I know it. I feel it within me. Every time it dims, it just floods back in a, in a new, in a fresh way. The incomprehensible love of God. Question for you this morning. Do you feel the love of God? Do you feel the love of God in your heart? Can you feel it? If you can't, then something in your relationship has grown cold. There is a coldness now in your relationship. If you can't feel the love of God in your heart this morning, there's, there's a sense of coldness that has come in. Sometimes when Carol and I have gotten really busy, a lot of responsibilities, family responsibilities, church and ministry responsibilities, we're kind of coming and going and flopping to bed and exhausted at the end of the day. I think you can relate. What what can happen is that over time there's, a, there's sort of a little coldness that begins to come into our relationship. It's not that her love for me has diminished in any way or my love for her has not diminished. 
But my sense of her love for me, the feeling of her love for me has grown a little cold. Grown a little cold. The feelings associated with our love, they're just not quite there, right? What do you do? That happens. What, what do we do when that happens? Well, what we try to do is to get away. We try to get away together. Some place where we can have some time alone together. Where we can talk with each other in a, in a more profound, more, a deeper way. We can begin to share with one another what's going on in our hearts, what we're thinking, what we're feeling. We share, you know, verbally, that what's What's happening? Why is it that we're feeling cold towards one another? And sometimes we do a little smooching. Yeah, I had to throw that in. <laughs> I don't want you to think I was like Mr. Spock or something. You know, some kind of robot. A little smooching's good. Helps. But what it does is it it rekindles that love and feeling, huh? Brings it back. It's a similar way with God. If you're not feeling the love of God in your heart this morning, it's not that God doesn't love you. It's not that his love for you is diminished in any way whatsoever. But what happens what has happened is as you as you've allowed some distance to, to come in, some so the pressures and hassles of life have come in. And the thing you need to do is get away together. Spend some time alone with your God. Get away and talk to Him. Let Him talk to you. Share with Him what's going on in your life. Let Him share with you what's important to Him. Have a spiritual retreat. Have your spiritual date night. Rekindle the passion. Feel the love of God poured out extravagantly, lavishly poured out through the Holy Spirit who resides within you. That seed of the Spirit of God, that inner awareness, that feeling of love, that's a subjective way that we know the love of God. And it's a very real way. But feelings can be elusive. And we don't want to build anything on feeling alone because feeling could be mistaken, right? I mean, it's possible someone could feel that God loves them and He doesn't love them at all. So feelings alone are not concrete enough. They are very real. But they are not concrete enough alone to know the love of God. So Paul will go on here in the text, right? Verses 6 and following. And he will remind the believer of the objective basis by which we know the love of God. But see, he includes this here for us in verse 5 because to know God is not just an intellectual thing. It's not just a cold, sterile orthodoxy. Oh, that must be orthodox. It is based on real objective truth. Facts, things that happen in space and time, but there is a passion, there is a feeling, there is a subjective nature to it all. But that subjective nature is grounded 
objectively in the crucifixion. It is in the crucifixion that we objectively know the love of God for us. Beloved, the Bible speaks of the love of God for its people and it speaks of it always in its highest, most lofty terms by framing it in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. John 3.16 For God so what? Loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, when God wants to communicate to your mind that He loves you, He points you to the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the place where His love is most vividly, most clearly displayed. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. We know the love of God by looking at the cross. And so that's what Paul does here in verses 6 through 8 as he points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. When I was young, before I became a believer, I had often heard this expression And I thought it was in the Bible, by the way, and that is that God helps those that help themselves. You ever heard that expression? God helps those that help themselves. I was, um, you know, I didn't become a believer until near the end of my junior year in college. And so it was some measure of shock that I came to understand that that's really not in the Bible at all. It's actually by uh, Benjamin Franklin in uh, Poor Richard's Almanac. And uh, Franklin was anything but a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So... That is absolutely wrong. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps who? The helpless. God helps the helpless. In fact, man cannot and does not help himself. He is totally dependent upon the mercy and grace of God. Verse 6. For a while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Actually, here in verses 6 through 10, Paul uses four words helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies, down in verse 10, to describe us. And he's not just using these words to describe Gentiles, he's using these words to describe all of humanity. All right? Verse 6 while we, including himself, while we, that is, including Paul, that is all humanity, while we were helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, God demonstrated His love for us. This is the love of God that stands behind your justification. The reason you are justified that has been made right is because of the love of God that acted on your behalf. Helpless. The word is, it means to be sick or to be weak 
It's used that way over in Matthew 25, verse 39. By the way, it's translated there, sick. Could be impotent or crippled. Acts 4.9. 1 Corinthians 12.22, feeble or weak. It's all in this notion of being helpless. Helpless. What does it mean? Well, simply what it means is that in his natural state, man is unable to resist the pull of sin. You are helpless. You are impotent. You are sick. You are weak. You are feeble before it. You're not able to do anything that qualifies you before God in terms of being virtuous or good. You are utterly devoid of power in your natural state to extract yourself from the misery of the condition in which you find yourself. You are helpless. You cannot atone for your own sin. You cannot regenerate your own heart. You can't keep yourself on the path of righteousness. How many times before you came to Christ did you make a promise to yourself that you would not do that again? And you did it again. You were sick. You were impotent. You were broken. You were helpless. Universally, perpetually, by all human power, incurably sick. Or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, dead in your trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. Can't fog a mirror. No hope in the world. None. None. Beyond that, verse 6, you're ungodly, he says. Ungodly. Impious. Heathens are the ungodly in the Scriptures. A very strong pejorative term. What it communicates here is a total absence of any relationship with the one true God. You have no relationship with the one true God. You are godless. 2 Peter 2.5 God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Okay, same word. The ungodly. God swept the planet clean. He flushed humanity in a great flood because they had no relationship. They were heathen, pagan, no claim on God at all. The ungodly. Verse 6, Paul says, while still helpless, while in this state of spiritual impotence, while dead in your trespasses and sins, at the right time, that is at the moment of need, the moment uh, when humanity is, is stuck in this morass that they will never escape from, at that moment, at that right time, Christ died for the heathen. Christ died for the heathen. At a time when humanity was powerless to break the chain of sin, Christ died. Charles Hodge, a good Bible commentator a few generations ago, he said, quote, that God should love the good, the righteous, the pure, the godly, is what we can understand. But that the infinitely holy should love the unholy and gave his son for their redemption is a wonder of all wonders. You bet it is. 
that God would give His own Son for helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies is beyond our comprehension. And so Paul draws it out here with a with an illustration. Verse 7, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. You know, the desire to live has got to be one of our strongest motivations. Isn't that true? I mean, that... that sense of hanging on, of fighting, is, is incredibly strong and resides within us. People don't give up their lives easily. Paul says, with difficulty, scarcely, hardly, it doesn't happen that someone would give up their life for another. In fact, our nation's highest Military award, the Congressional Medal of Honor, is awarded to those soldiers, sailors, marines, airmen who, in those very rare instances, in the face of immediate and life-threatening harm, act in, in a way with total disregard for their own personal safety and accomplish the deliverance or rescue of fellow soldiers. Those are the, that's the criteria to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor. 60% of Congressional Medals of Honor are awarded posthumously. That means they're already dead by the time the award is given. 60% of them. Out of the 3,460 Medals of Honor that have been awarded in this country since the Civil War, only 123 medal winners are alive today. Only 123. Now that goes all the way back and would sweep up all the veterans of World War II and for everything since. This award is not given away lightly. To win the Congressional Medal of Honor is to be placed in a very rare and unique category where one has given their life for others. Paul is just observing this reality here in verse 7. And he's using this to, to further highlight the amazing nature of God's love for sinners. He imagines two men for us here. Do you see it? One will hardly die for a righteous man. That's one individual. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would even dare to die. That's a second individual. Two men, the righteous and the good. The righteous uh, describes a, a person who lives in accordance with the laws of men and God. He is a righteous man. He lives in accordance with the, the laws of men and God. Not a perfect man, but a man on which there is no serious shortcoming, no hidden faults or flaws. A righteous man. Joseph, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Right? Joseph, husband of Mary, was called a righteous man. That's what we're talking about. A righteous man. And, and Paul says that with difficulty, scarcely, hardly would anyone ever die for such an individual. That's a pretty lofty and noble kind of guy. But people won't die for him. And then he goes on and he says, verse 7, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. Now, there is some difference of opinion here, but based on what I read, and I think this is right, the, the reference here to the good man is a is a reference to what would have been known in that culture as a benefactor. 
a benefactor. The good man would have been what's called a benefactor. What is a benefactor? A benefactor is a, a person of, of some importance and wealth who, who takes up a, a personal interest in and promotes the welfare of another individual. It, for example, if you, uh, if you lived in a time in which, you know, uh, your family had no connections and, and uh, poverty was always at the door, you know, kind of the wolf at the door thing, a benefactor would be someone who would come along and would provide for your needs. When you lost your job or whatever, they would come and they would provide adequate uh, resources for you to continue to live. They would watch over you, almost like a guardian angel kind of concept. The benefactor. Now, this culture... First century culture here is a culture that is characterized by loyalty, by hospitality, and by shame. Things that we don't really understand all that well. And what Paul is saying here is, in that culture, it, it would have been noble. The noble thing to do would have been to die on behalf of your benefactor. Because of the great obligation that you would owe them. The good man. But Paul saying... Uh, Perhaps you would die for the benefactor. He's not even sure that people would do that. See, there is such a strong desire to live. Such a strong passion to live. That Paul says, even for someone who's worth it, scarcely will someone give their life in exchange. Scarcely. If you had a rich uncle, would you die for him? Would you die for him? And here comes now. It's like a, like a jackhammer. Kind of slaps your side of the head here. The force of the contrast. The force of the contrast here, beloved, is that we are not righteous. And we are not, what? Good. You see? The force of the contrast here is is that Jesus didn't die on behalf of a righteous man. Jesus did not die on behalf of a good man, a benefactor. Jesus died on behalf of those who are helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. Do you see it? And it's driven even further home. By the death of Jesus Christ, it was not like he just fell on a grenade for his buddies, you know, in the passion of the moment. Jesus Christ, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. He wasn't just walking through this world and someone lobbed a grenade into the middle of it and he threw himself on it. Jesus willingly, Jesus calculatingly, Jesus humbly and Jesus irreversibly made the decision to leave the throne room of glory and to come to earth. To suffer the humiliation of the incarnation that eventuated in the cross itself. To have his eternal fellowship with the Father, the triune fellowship that he enjoyed from eternity past. To be severed there on that cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the place of people who were not righteous. People who are not good. He took the place, verse 8, of sinners. While we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. It's amazing. He didn't wait till you cleaned up your act. As if you could. Right? He didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for the righteous. He didn't die for the good. He died for the wicked. The impious. The heathen. While we were still alienated from the Father, while we cared nothing about Him, He loved us and sent His Son who died in our place. This is the demonstration, verse 8. Present tense verb, by the way. The ongoing demonstration of the love of God is that Christ died, past tense. Christ's death is God's ongoing demonstration of His love for you. You wonder if God loves you? Look behind me. Look behind me. See that empty cross. That's proof. It's proof of the love of God. Folks, if God loved us because we loved Him, what kind of assurance would that be? Our love for God goes up and down and up and down, right? They say for the Calvinist, the, uh, the flower that uh, signifies their theology is the tulip. For the Arminian, the flower is the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. You can think about that one. If, if it depends on your grip on God, how sure are you? If it depends on God's grip on you, His love for you, then you're sure. Then you have your insurance. Because God loved us while we were the most unlovable. At the moment of when we were most unlovable, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to atone for our sin. There is a constancy to that love. There is a certainty to that love. We can both feel it and see it. We know the love of God in Jesus Christ. I want to invite you this morning. I want to invite you this morning. If you don't know this love, I want you to invite you to come. You can know it. You can know it. You can experience the love of God. If you're broken, hurting, your life is all messed up. The weight of sin and guilt weighs so heavy on your shoulders. You're tired of wearing your Sunday morning face. Pretending that you really do know God. That everything's okay. And on the inside, you're dead. And you know it. You have no assurance of salvation. If I were to ask you, just personally, kind of one-on-one over a cup of coffee, and say to you, you know, if you were to die tonight stand before God and he said why should I let you into my heaven what would you tell him and you don't have a good answer you say I I don't know I, I hope he would let me in but I don't know you can know you can know this issue can be settled 
This issue can be settled. Jesus calls. He's calling to you right now, this morning. Come to me, he said, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Do you know the love of God this morning? Do you want to? Will you respond? After the service, we'll have some folks over here by this lighted cross. They would like nothing better than to open the Scriptures with you and to show you the way of salvation. Show you how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe there are other things that you would like to come and receive some spiritual help with. Maybe there's an issue that's just hanging heavy on your heart. Something you'd like somebody to pray with you about. Talk to you. Give you some counsel. Maybe you just want to be alone with God right now. Pray yourself. That door over here, there's a prayer room. It's a quiet and private and peaceful place. You can sit there. You can pray. Beloved, you don't want to You don't want to go out of this place and just blow it off. Just another Sunday. The Spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now. And you respond. Let me pray. Father God, You love us. And you demonstrated that love to us through the gift of your son. There is no greater gift, God, that you could have given us. No, no greater gift that we need. There is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is in Christ alone. You have provided for us all that we need. Our Father, we thank You for Your love for us. We confess that we are unworthy, undeserving. Nothing in us to commend us to You. We have no virtue. Nothing in the past and nothing in the present and there will be none in the future that would in any way incline You in our direction. It is only Your mercy, only Your grace. All glory to You, none to us. We thank you for opening our eyes to such truth. And we thank you, our Father, that this truth resides in not just in our minds, but in our hearts, too. We have a real, loving relationship with the God of the universe. This is eternal life, that they may know me and Jesus Christ, whom I have sent. John 17. Father, thank You that we know You. That we love You. 
we give you glory and ask that you would extend this saving love to someone here this morning for your name's sake. Amen.